Go ahead, Governor Inslee. The biggest threat to the security of the United States is Donald Trump. And there's no Well said, Governor. Thank you. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Up in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, both streaming and terrestrial. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for, uh, well, what had been planned to be our special coverage of Wednesday night's first 2020 Democratic presidential debate in Miami. And it still will be uh, our special coverage of that. But very quickly, as we discussed on yesterday's broadcast with Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, which I recommend you download and listen to as a podcast if you missed it, that's available for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those kind folks who make it available to all by uh, supporting our work here uh, by stopping by bradblog.com donate. As we discussed yesterday, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court was preparing to drop its last big opinions for this term today on two matters that we have been following very closely on this program now for many months So before we get to our debate coverage, let's hit this. uh, Well, let's hit the bad news first, giving a green light for partisan legislatures to undermine their own voters, at least certain voters who don't support them. The Supreme Court gave a big thumbs up to extreme partisan gerrymandering on Thursday with Chief Justice John Roberts declaring in his majority opinion in two cases that the federal court has no role in policing the practice. Instead, it will be the gerrymandered legislatures themselves who are apparently best suited to dealing with the problem of partisan gerrymandering by these gerrymandered legislatures. The problem that they themselves created, I guess they are the ones who uh, will be the ones to fix it. I'm sure they'll get right on that. The stolen Republican Supreme Court split five to four along predictable party lines. 
which is why the Republicans stole the majority in the first place on the nation's high court, with Justice Elena Kagan issuing a blistering defense in response to the majority. Roberts wrote for the stolen majority that, uh, quote, our conclusion does not condone excessive partisan gerrymandering, nor does our conclusion condemn complaints about districting to echo into a void. Well, actually, it does condemn those complaints to echoing into a void for the most part. The states, for example, he says, are actively addressing the issue on a number of fronts. Well, that's true. They are with some citizen ballot initiatives. But in many states, citizens do not have the ability to put an initiative on the ballot. So it is, yes, left to those lawmakers. In practice, the ruling is a devastating blow to voting rights advocates who had hoped that the nation's highest court would impose some limits on extreme gerrymanders to prevent the lawmakers who control how congressional and state legislative offices are drawn to create maps that benefit themselves. Yes, lawmakers choosing their own voters rather than voters being allowed to choose their own lawmakers through fair and competitive representation. The court was ruling on two partisan gerrymandering cases, one challenging a single party uh, partisan gerrymandered district map that was drawn by Democrats in Maryland. The other was challenging the entire Republican U.S. House map that was drawn by GOP uh, lawmakers in North Carolina after the 2010 census. The Supreme Court's 5-4 to four ruling uh, means that uh, multiple lower court rulings, all of them who had reversed the partisan gerrymanders in Maryland, in Michigan, in North Carolina, in Ohio and Wisconsin, all of those will now be overturned. This is a huge win for Republicans who specifically fought to win state legislatures back in 2010 so they could use advanced computerized map schemes to guarantee that they held state legislative and U.S. House majorities for the next decade. This theft, in fact, worked for that decade. And now it looks as if uh, they'll be allowed to do that for another decade or longer. In her dissent, Justice Kagan countered the partisan uh, countered that the partisan gerrymanders here debased and dishonored our democracy, turning upside down the core American idea that all governmental power derives from the people. She wrote, Advancements in computing technology have enabled lawmakers to craft maps that benefit their party with unprecedented efficiency and precision. She concluded her powerful dissent with these words. She said, Of all times, to abandon the court's duty to declare the law, this was not the one. The practices challenged in these cases imperil our system of government. Part of the court's role in that system is to defend its foundations. None is more important than free and fair elections, she wrote, adding, with respect but deep sadness, I dissent. For his part, our uh, regular Supreme Court correspondent slates Mark Joseph Stern, who we will speak to uh, next week about the uh, final opinions of the term after we're clear of this week's debate coverage. Uh, he wrote today in his own blistering dissent on Twitter, quote, this is the nightmare. The Supreme Court's decision is a crushing defeat for voting rights. It is hard to overstate the impact of this ruling. Federal courts are now powerless to stop politicians 
from drawing gerrymanders that indefinitely entrench their party's power, calling this a fiasco for democracy. Well, add it to the list. The court's decision raises the stakes on the 2020 elections now big time, where in many states voters will choose the lawmakers who will draw the maps for the next decade of redistricting, which makes the court's other big, much-anticipated ruling today Uh, Somewhat uh, surprisingly good news from the court, at least for the moment, the Supreme Court is forbidding President Donald Trump's administration from adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census, at least for now. The court says the Trump administration's explanation for wanting to add the question was, quote, more of a distraction than an explanation and that it appears to have been contrived. It's unclear whether the administration would have time now to provide a fuller account of why they wanted to add this question before the printing process must begin. Census forms are supposed to be printed beginning next week, according to the administration anyway, at least when they were interested in pressuring the court to decide in their favor on this matter. So the question about citizenship could be added in order to depress response rate to the census, which would then be used to increase federal funding and voting power for, according to their own gerrymandering expert, quote, Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. The court ruled in that case five to four on Thursday. Again, Chief Justice John Roberts joined the four liberals in the relevant part of the outcome. A lower court had found the administration violated federal law in the way that it tried to add the question, lying to both Congress and the courts about their reasons for doing so. The Census Bureau's own experts have predicted that millions of Hispanics and immigrants would go uncounted if the census asked everyone if he or she is an American citizen. The U.S. Constitution, of course, requires the enumeration of all persons, not of all citizens, not all white people, not all Republicans, not all voting age Americans, all persons every 10 years. This ruling is um, at least a setback for now for the Trump administration. Though Roberts left open the possibility that the administration might get another bite at the apple if they can provide an adequate explanation for their actions, executive branch officials must, quote, offer genuine justifications for important decisions, reasons that can be scrutinized by courts and the interested public, the chief justice wrote. The practical impact today of the decision is not immediately clear. The question is barred for now, but it is at least possible that the administration will be able to offer some adequate justification for it. But time is now short. The census forms must be printed soon. Yet Trump uh, took to Twitter today to say that he had asked the lawyers, quote, asked the lawyers if they can delay the census no matter how long until the United States Supreme Court is given additional information from which it can make a final and decisive decision on this very critical matter. For now, the uh, census case will be sent back down to the lower courts. So what is uh, good news today, at least on that score, uh, is that for now this is held off. Uh, if not good news on the gerrymandering score. Uh, But the good news today could become bad news in the near future. As noted, we will be getting into both of these cases in much more detail next week, though I do imagine or at least hope 
that the candidates on the stage on night two of this week's Democratic presidential debate may have a thought or two on today's SCOTUS opinions. And speaking of which, yes, 10 Democratic candidates appeared on stage at Miami's Adrian Arsht Center for the Performing Arts on Wednesday night for night one of debate one for the 2020 Democratic presidential nominating contest, appearing on Wednesday for the first night's festivities. Just so I'm sure to at least mention each of them once today was uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, former HUD secretary and former San Antonio, Texas Mayor Julian Castro, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, former Maryland Congressman John Delaney, and Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. I won't for now uh, read off all the candidates coming on night two. You're welcome. But they do include Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and uh, Pete Buttigieg. I promise we will get to all of them on our next broadcast. But today we will focus on the first night and what, if anything, we're able to learn about the candidates themselves and their chances of eventually securing the nomination to run against, at least in theory, President Donald Trump next year. Joining us for some help on that score this hour, of course, as always, the delightful and perpetually exhausted for some reason, Desi Doyen is here. Hi, Des. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, also joining us today is one of our reigning debate rap champs, the award-winning Salon.com political columnist and founder of the beloved Digby's Hullabaloo blog. That would be the great Heather Digby Parton. Hey, Heather, how are you? Brad, hi, thanks uh, for me. <laughs> uh, also uh, with us today, another old friend and favorite guest over the years, though it seems like it's been a very long time now since he's been with us, the always insightful Dave Johnson, formerly of Campaign for America's Future, still the founder of SeeingTheForest.com a blog which has been offering progressive analysis and troublemaking for, I think, going on about 17 years now. Dave Johnson, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. Listen, I, I, I'd prefer to spend the whole hour making sense of Wednesday night's debate, frankly, but this news from the Supreme Court, while not entirely unexpected uh, and arguably, I think, even better than expected, at least in the census case for now, uh, it's huge enough, frankly, I'd like to get your very quick thoughts on it. Let me start with... Uh, Heather here, your thoughts on the uh, last of the two big opinions from the Supreme Court today before they head off for summer vacation and leave the rest of us to deal with their messes? I assume you're talking about the census case. Um, and yes, I mean, it, I was surprised, frankly, because, you know, it gives me some small hope that even that Justice John Robert has, Roberts still has a tiny bit of shame because the you know, in some sense that maybe the Supreme Court should have some credibility. Um, this case was, uh, it was full of lies, mm -hmm. essentially. And in fact, the opinion actually says that. So uh, I'm happily surprised, and hopefully there, you know, there will be more of this in the future where Roberts just says, I can't wake up in the morning and look myself in the mirror uh, if I go along with this. I mean, clearly he wanted to. You could tell by the other half of that decision. But, um, yeah. you know, he did in the end say pretty much clearly that the Trump administration had been lying through their teeth and it didn't make any sense. And so he said, we're not going to go that far. Well, on the census, he did. On the gerrymandering, he did not. Dave Johnson, uh, what's uh, is this going to be as troubling an effect as I think that it will be? Oh, yeah. Uh, quick point. First, uh, they 
they clearly were going to go the other way with the census, but they got shamed by the discovery of these files on a guy's computer after he died. He was mm -hmm. a consultant. He had written some things about how the census question is designed specifically to get more white people and the type of people who would vote Republican mm -hmm. and keep minorities, especially Hispanics, from participating. Second point, this is the same guy who's the consultant on the gerrymandering cases, said the same thing about the gerrymandering cases. But mm -hmm. this is why these people were put on the Supreme Court, especially Gorsuch, after after uh, holding off Garland mm -hmm. uh, or the Kavanaugh. Yeah. No, Gorsuch, no. It after was, holding yeah. off Garland for yeah. a whole year, uh, unconstitutionally not even letting the guy get a hearing or anything, this is why they're there. And we've got to recognize this is why they're there. It's a Republican court, and it's there to affirm the power of the Republican Party and keep democracy from keeping them out. So, Heather, should Democrats in states where they control the legislature and the governor's mansion, should they just partisan gerrymander the hell out of the states after the 2020 census? I mean, the Supreme Court says that robbing certain voters of their power is just fine. So why should Democrats unilaterally disarm? Well, they shouldn't. Um, interestingly, in California, the state with the highest number of uh, representatives, mm -hmm. they don't need to do it. <laughs> the Democrats already are so dominant. I mean, how, how many do we have now in California, uh, Republican uh, you know, House members? Yeah, about two or three left out of like yeah, 54 I mean, so districts. Yeah. That's the moot point in California. They've actually managed to change it to the point where, you know, they flipped a lot of what had been traditionally... Republican districts mm -hmm. in the last election in 2018 to the point where it's, it's so dominant it's almost it's a one-party state essentially. Um, so you know, on the other hand, in other places where it's not like that, where there's still a you know a, a sharp divide, um, it's very tempting because basically what the court has said, you know, hey, look, you know, this is a political decision. We don't have a, you know we don't have a dog in this fight. You people do what you need to do. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of gut checking going on because, you know, the good government uh, Democrats, the people, the reformers, mm -hmm. going for nonpartisan gerrymandering, which is the right thing to do and which the Supreme Court should have affirmed in a much stronger sense. But they didn't do that. So now we're stuck with do we do, you know, like everything else in American politics, right? Mm. Do the right thing and follow the norms and be reformers and be good government. And let the Republicans, these, these radical nihilists, um, just basically run roughshod. And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know I, it either. I think yeah. I do. I think the answer to that is yes, absolutely, Democrats must take the gloves off and they have to fight. This is a street fight and we have to have Democratic uh, state legislators in place in 2020 in order to protect folks from 2020 to 2030. And yeah, they absolutely should give Republicans back exactly the same medicine that they have meted out. Then in those states, people can pass the nonpartisan uh, redistricting commissions, because otherwise it's never going to happen for those people. Wow, that's a pretty strong uh, opinion from Des, as uh, <laughs> like someone who's been up all night uh, getting clips from a debate or something. <laughs> uh, on to that debate. We will, I want to well, we'll, a quick thing. Yeah, Des, quick. Des says what I feel too, but I got to point out yeah. Democrats can't redistrict like Republicans can because Democrats are concentrated in cities. So it makes it very difficult to do that kind of mm. partisan redistricting. But I'll also point out, when California changed to a nonpartisan redistricting, that's when we got rid of even more Republicans. So, <laughs> so just to point out, it, Democrats what? might not even need to. They might just need fair uh, 
districts. All right, on to the debates, uh, and we'll get to some uh, to the specific candidates and issues uh, in a moment as we move forward. But I sort of want to go around the the table here, get your sort of big picture thoughts on night one of the first Democratic debate of 2020. Dave, let's let's start with you here. Uh, your general takeaway from uh, night one. Warren did good. She didn't break out, but she didn't need to. She did great. Uh, she didn't hurt herself, and that, that was the most important thing, I think, for her. Uh, Castro did better than expected, got to say, mostly because he'd been ignored till now. Beto, Beto shouldn't be in the race anymore. He was, he was <laughs> awful. Ryan and Klobuchar and Delaney, I, I don't even want to talk about Delaney, but they, they were <laughs> terrible to themselves. De Blasio helped himself Inslee. The, the reason for Inslee to be in the race, and he said so, was so that he could try to get a climate debate and mm-hmm. so he could bring up climate. Well, he's done that, and uh, I think it's time to go. I, I uh, well, that's all. We'll get okay. into the rest later about him. And Gabbard was great. She was great. Uh, somebody told me she was just army, army, army all the time. Yeah, uh, her uh, anti-war views. Now we could get into a whole lot about Gabbard later, but as far as the uh, debate audience that doesn't understand the uh, backstory on Gabbard, uh, I think she helped herself a lot. All right, and I was going to go through uh, one by one with each of you on on each of the candidates, but uh, looks like Dave, ju- you beat me to it there, <laughs> Dave. So I'll, let me give uh, Heather a chance to run through uh, those same folks or the big picture uh, of the uh, debate overall, as you see it last night. Um, okay, I'm not as good at doing that sort of you know uh, breakdown of where they helped and where they hurt each other. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll take the big picture question. Um, to me, I, I ended the evening sort of feeling quite optimistic about the Democrats. Number one, the, the party has moved left, and in a lot of ways that are finally bringing the political class in line with where the Democratic voters have been for a long time. It's a, it's a sort of tacit acceptance of the fact that this is a, a fight. It's a fight in two re- respects. One is it's a fight against a party that has completely gone rogue as far as constitutional um, imperative mm-hmm. and uh, a, a, a dedication to a sort of system that works for everyone. They are um, extreme partisans at this point, as we've watched over the last couple of years with Trump. They've been that way for a long time, and now it's kind of reached this fever pitch. And so the Democrats have decided, instead of trying to, the presidential candidates, instead of trying to shave off along the edges as they've been, you know, for for years, uh, it, there's clearly a move to the left. Um, and also, uh, I, I also thought that, you know, that all of them, you know, I, I didn't have, have quite as harsh an assessment as, as Dave did on some of these people. He's very strict. He's very uh, yeah, he's, I'm I'm a little looser. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I was impressed by all of them at some point in the evening, yeah. something that they said. I, you know, I have to admit, going just being up front with everybody so you know where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. I am a big fan of Elizabeth Warren's, and I have been for many years. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, my feelings about this are colored by that. I'm not making an endorsement, but I'm just I'm admitting to the fact that you know she's sort of a uh, a north star for me in many ways, and uh, I felt like she was really great. Um, but I looked at the rest of these people, and I went, "What a bunch of serious people we have here!" And yeah. and and the fact checkers at the end of the night all went. Well, I guess we're going home. Yeah, none I know. Of them lied. I know, and that was one of the points that I wanted to make. Well, actually, let me get in Desi's uh, <laughs> broad thoughts here for a second, and then I'll uh, share some of mine. Okay, that I think, uh, I'll yeah. go with the broad overview idea. I think okay. uh, it was a, a great way to introduce all of the candidates to a public that doesn't know 
any of them very well, in my opinion. So that was good. I was disappointed by the fact that there was so little time to discuss policy, but, you know, it wasn't really the right venue to be able to do that. One minute increments, especially when it comes to something as important as climate change. Six minutes for that. That was terrible. Um, I was impressed by everybody, much like uh, Digby was. Mm -hmm. Um, They still need to get out if they're not actually going to be a serious candidate, because I don't think all of them have the capacity or the knowledge or the ability to run the vast executive branch. I, too, was uh, shockingly surprised by almost all of them. I think uh, Bader O'Rourke was a disappointment, but there was other people, uh, and, and I don't, not sure how much Tim Ryan offered, but uh, John Delaney even surprised me with having a moment or two. But so I thought there was, you know, quite a few good candidates on the stage, more than I expected. But as uh, you note, uh, Heather, these, uh, you know, all of these media outlets have fa- set up these fact check shops now uh, during the Trump era at uh, places like CNN and AP and so forth. And uh, I did the same thing you did. I looked at these fact checks afterwards. And basically, after the first hour, CNN had just two fact checks up. Both of them essentially said, yeah, that claim's about right. Uh yeah. Over at PolitiFact a- afterwards, I checked again. They didn't have that many more fact checks uh, after a two-hour-long debate. But then these are exact quotes now from their fact checks. Uh, they said things like, this is largely accurate. This is largely correct. This is pretty much on the money. The facts support her assessment. This is accurate, and the numbers are even less flattering than Klobuchar suggested. They they had to really work to find stuff that was, you know, sort of largely accurate, but needed some additional context. I found that to be a wildly enjoyable change of pace, Heather. <laughs> uh, it really was. And, and <laughs> it reminded me that it used to be like that. You know, the, yeah. the fact checks were always around these sort of nuanced issues. I mean, this, the blatant lying that we've seen. And I mean, how many yeah. lies is Trump up to now? 12,000 or something? Right. Um, that just really wasn't the way they did it. They had some sense that someone was going to check, and that was kind of a bad thing. You know, somebody right. caught you in a blatant lie, you know, ooh, not, not good for a, for a politician. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's just, hey, you know, yeah, I lied. What of it? I know you are, but what am I? You yeah. know, I mean, this is the attitude that you have. And so it was very bizarre, almost, to have, to realize that, that this group of people, mm-hmm. however much they may differ, however better they may be as politicians or worse, um, they're all operating from the same reality. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, you know, there is some basis yeah. of, of, of factual information uh, that they are operating from, which means you can have a reasoned debate. Even if you disagree, you know, like Delaney, you know, I, I don't want to hear about any more businessmen. I think we've had our fill. I think we know how well that works out now. It didn't work, you know, after having Trump. So his, his talking about his business you know, acumen didn't really speak to me. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't speaking from, you know, standing up there bragging about the size of his hands and stuff or talking <laughs> about how he made billions from the Saudis. I mean, this right. is like, you know, this was a completely different sort of... of uh, he wasn't of, a crazy person, basically. He was... Uh, everyone was in the bounds of reality. They're going to have to... If this sort of thing continues, they're going to have to fire a lot of people at these fact-check uh, shops that they've set <laughs> up. Uh, now, listen, i got to say, I I'm not really a horse race guy. I prefer with these things to sort of focus on issues and so forth. But that said, it seems to me that one of the biggest issues actually in this race, particularly this early with this many candidates and a need, I think, to ultimately thin the herd, so to speak, here 
One of the biggest issues is Donald Trump himself and taking on Trump directly as the threat that he poses to the nation and the world. And I think that threat is right up there with some of the most serious issues that our country faces. So I really don't understand why Democrats, at least some of them, seem to be shying away from the issue. Am I am I wrong, Dave Johnson? Uh, yes and no. I, I, I noticed there was not a defensiveness on almost anyone's part that you usually see from Democrats where they're their whole uh, their whole narrative is designed to try to counter what the right's saying about them. Mm-hmm. They were all ahead of that, except on one health care point. Uh, they they were asked about what are you going to do about McConnell, uh, and I think I heard a few talking about how they're going to handle this. I mean, of course, the whole well, when when uh, Trump is gone, it, well, the Republicans will be bipartisan again thing. <laughs> A couple of the candidates were kind of like, I can work with them stuff. But I think Warren gave the best answer uh, on that, where she talked about, after I get in, we continue uh, from from day one to push and push and push to, uh, to you know, like end the filibuster, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. On Trump himself, no, I didn't hear how they're going to beat Trump. And, 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 and I don't, that'll become a key question. You're exactly right. And, and I don't understand why that is. Uh, and Democrats seem to want to take him out of the, the debate, but, you know, I, I perked. You want to take him out of the debate? No, I understand why they're doing that. Well, be- explain that to me, because, Heather, you know, the biggest sort of surprise twist of the night, I thought, was when uh, Chuck Todd was asking each candidate what they thought the greatest geopolitical threat was that the country faced. And then we got to Jay Inslee. And, of course, everyone thought we were all waiting for him to say climate change. <laughs> uh, and instead, right. he said... The biggest threat to the security of the United States is Donald Trump. And, there's no <laughs> and the crowd went wild for that anytime uh, th- there were shots at Donald Trump, the crowd went wild. Why are Democrats shying away from that issue, Heather? For the same reason that Democrats are shying away from impeachment. It's because the consultants, the focus group people, the strategists, and the leadership are all saying people don't care about that. They want to hear about kitchen table issues. And I'm not arguing that people don't want to hear about kitchen table issues, but they really want to hear about how you're going to beat Trump, or even just if you're going to beat Trump, or Mm -hmm. just, you know, let's all cheer together about how much we hate Trump. I mean, this this is a big thing. And I, I think they're wrong. I mean, I know that there's science behind this, and they, you know, they looked at 2018 and saw the way that the, the House members won their districts and swing districts and by, by focusing really strongly. But, you know, the subtext in the House, House races across the board, whether or not they said it or not, was we need a majority to stop Trump. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that is also the case going into 2020. So I totally agree with you. Those are the big crowd-pleasing um, you know, comments. And I think it's a, I think it's a mistake. It's just like what Dave said, you know, at some point these people, now granted, this is the first debate, so, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. we're going to have a thousand of them, we're going right. to remember half these people six months from now. But nonetheless, the big question for everyone is, if, number one, you know, can you beat Trump? And after that is all the rest of this, which I think is very exciting for those of us who are progressives and want to see a... Right. A progressive agenda, but that may that is a big question, and it was very you know there were, the only person I think who mentioned impeachment was the hated O'Rourke, and he said you know we've got to impeach him to save the country basically, and uh, Jay Inslee who said that Trump is the greatest. You well, know, 
It, it, it just seems like there are uh, there will be time to sort out the various policy differences. But even the, the the candidate, whoever you choose, who has the absolute best policies in the whole wide world, if they cannot stand up and take on Donald Trump uh, through a long presidential campaign, I see no reason why they should be running at all. And so I think right now. Uh, you know, it seems to me we need to thin the herd of the people who are who, you know, who are capable of actually taking on Donald Trump. And by the way, that's different from electability that they're talking about with Joe Biden. He's, you know, some the consultants are saying, oh, he's more electable for this, for that reason. I'm not even talking about that. I'm not uh, you know, I'm talking about who as a candidate uh, will be able to stand toe-to-toe with Donald Trump, whether it's on the debate stage or on Twitter or anywhere else, and take him on and win next year. doesn't matter if you have the greatest policies in the world if you can't beat that guy. <sighs> All right, uh, let's let's take a quick break, and we will uh, come back with some specific topics that were discussed with, of course, Desi Doyen and our guest Dave Johnson and Heather Digby-Parton as our special coverage of Debate One, Night One, continues. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. The Bradcast and The Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. We're not being honest about the division that's been fomented in this country. The way that American citizens have been told that immigrants somehow created their misery and their pain and their challenges. For all the American citizens out there who feel you're falling behind, who feel the American dream's not working for you, the immigrants didn't do that to you. The big corporations did that to you. The 1% did that to you. Right, right, you're bloody well right. You got a bloody right to say. You do indeed. Right. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was, of course, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, interrupting at last night's debate in Miami, the first night of the first Democratic debate. Uh, Did a good job of interrupting, actually. Uh, Got in a lot of good points that I think he might not otherwise have done. I'm uh, here with Slate's Heather Digby-Parton and Dave Johnson of Seeing the Forest. And, of course, Desi Doyen. All right, guys, uh, Elizabeth Warren was uh, leading in the polls before Wednesday night's debate uh, among those who appeared on the stage on uh, with her on that first night. So she got the first question, which was right in her wheelhouse on the economy and taking on big corporate interests. Here was part of her response about taking on big monopolies. What's been missing is courage. Courage in Washington to take on the giants. That's part of the corruption in this system. It has been far too long that the monopolies have been making the campaign contributions, have been funding the super PACs, have been out there making sure that their influence is heard and felt in every single decision that gets made in Washington. Where I want to start this is I want to return government to the people, and that means calling out the names of the monopolists and saying, I have the courage to go after them. 
Heather Digby Parton, uh, trust buster Elizabeth Warren. Is this something that we could really see from a Warren administration? Or is this precisely the reason why supposedly there would be unprecedented corporate spending to oppose her nomination if she was uh, selected by Democratic voters? Well, I think both of those things you said are true. I think mm-hmm. we, we, you would see unprecedented corporate spending, but I'm fairly sure you're going to see it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, whether it's her, or certainly Sanders, they would do the same thing, too. I think, and if you listen to the people last night, and I assume uh, tonight as well, uh, maybe with the exception of Joe Biden and, you know, some of the others who are trying to, uh, you know, be, position themselves in a more centrist, um, centrist lane. Mm-hmm. Um, but, look, I believe her. And the reason I believe her is because she's done that. She created, she was the, the, the energy behind the CF, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which, mm-hmm. of course, Trump has tried to decapitate. Um, and, you know, I think she has a track record of doing this. And, in fact, it's these issues that she spent her life's work working on on a policy level at a very, very granular level. So she understands it. I think she has a good way of selling it. And I think it's not just her. I mean, you know, she's, she's articulating it, I think, as well as anybody does in the country. But, I mean, in the Democratic Party, the idea of, of taking on monopoly power it has become, and this is, this is, I will give my credit to people like Dave and others who've been working in this sector for a long time, mm-hmm. who've been pushing this idea and pushing this into the, into the political dialogue. And I think it's finally arrived. And, you know, it's, God knows it's overdue, right? I mean, it's been, you know, since the Great Recession, we've mm-hmm. been sort of desperately trying to churn this idea out there, like, hey, look, something's really gone wrong. And so anyway, I think that, I think that uh, it is a big issue. I think it's going to be part of the Democratic, um, you know, quote, populist uh, argument. And I think she did a very good job of articulating it. Dave Johnson, uh, Cory Booker, I thought actually did well last night, which is good because I have been surprised that he has not found more traction so far in the polls. Uh, He said he wouldn't call for breaking up monopolistic companies like Google and Amazon for being too large, too powerful, but that he would mention the names of companies like Amazon and Halliburton for not paying taxes. Uh, Is that enough or does the country need some real, you know, Teddy Roosevelt style trust busting after so many years of the, you know, seeming corporate takeover of the entire nation and its political system at this point? No, it's not enough. Uh, And Heather just nailed, I think, the key issue, not just in the primaries, but in the election. Warren is believable. And uh, Bernie's believable. It's the authenticity. You know both of them have been fighting for these things for so long, and people are so tired of being betrayed. Now, Booker, I love Cory Booker. Whenever he talks, I'm like, oh, I love this guy. And then <laughs> stuff like what he did there. You know, he, he mentioned pharma. I don't know how many times. The reason for that is because he got caught a few years ago voting against a bill to allow people to buy drugs in Canada, and then it came out that he was taking a bunch of money from pharmaceutical companies. He's not taking money from them anymore, and he's saying bad things about them. But that is the kind of thing that I think, as, as word gets out or not, I don't know, but that's the kind of thing that is driving the Bernie and the Warren phenomena. And, yes, we absolutely have to break up these large companies. Let me get your thoughts, uh, Dave, on uh, what Cory Booker said about health care, uh, because I want because I, I think it needs some explaining. Uh, he said that uh, health care was an issue that was too urgent to wait. 
I'm not sure what he's referring to here, but let me play it and, and, and I'll get your thoughts on this. Healthcare is not just a human right, it should be an American right. And I believe the best way to get there is Medicare for all. But I have an urgency about this. When I am president of the United States, I'm not going to wait. We have to do the things immediately that are going to provide better care. And on this debate, I, I'm sorry, there are too many people profiteering off of the pain of people in America, from, from pharmaceutical companies to insurers. We can do this better. Better, and every single day I will be fighting to give people more access and more affordable costs until we get to my goal, which is, is every American having health So, Dave, he says he, he won't wait. I'm not even sure what that means. What yeah, can... not, that's another one of those kind of lobbyist-induced things, kind of like saying you'll lose your insurance if we have Medicare, kind of that same thing, which is how the moderator phrased it to mm-hmm. bring that into the question. Now, he's right. It's a desperate situation still for lots of people. Part of that, though, is because Medicaid was denied by the Supreme Court, and then all these Republican states denied Medicaid to their people. Under uh, uh, under Obamacare, right. Yeah, yeah the expansion. I, I just got to say something about the, the lobbyist phrasing there. Uh, well, yeah, that's just tricky. I don't even know what it means either. Nobody knows what it means. It sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, my God, we've got to help these people right away. So what? But he can't <laughs> do it. He can't do it without Congress. He can't. I right, mean, it's exactly. Not, and if yeah. you're going to... I mean, Medicare phases in. You can do a lot in the meantime. You can do a lot about drug prices in the meantime. But uh, I just want to say, Medicare also prohibits private insurance from covering things that are already covered. That's the whole point. That's You lose your insurance because it's something that's already covered. And it doesn't ban supplemental policies that cover other stuff, too. It's, it's just a trick to make people think they're saying, we're going to throw these people off of medical care? No, no, we're not going to have them scammed by insurance anymore. They really, it was the best part last night when they all started talking about the health care situation. Let me, let me play that. sorted out the lobbyist-owned people from the ones that aren't. Well, it was interesting. Let me, let me play this because I do have some questions about this. There was this, so the question was from NBC moderator Lester Holt. He was, he asked for a show of hands of those who favor abolishing, presumably that means banning, private health insurance uh, with a single-payer, universal, Medicare-for-all-style, government-run health care system. Uh, the only ones to raise their hands were Elizabeth Warren, raised her hand right away, and uh, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. My question is, why is it necessary? Why is this, and, and, and uh, Bernie Sanders has brought this up, why is it necessary to ban private health insurance with Medicare-for-all? Why not let just let such companies continue to sell their whatever product it is they think they're offering and let them wither on the vine. If the uh, government single-payer system is so much better, you know, I would go with that system and I would uh, drop my uh, private insurer. Why do why do we need to ban them? I don't understand that question. Because insuring people for something they already have is nothing but a scam. It's prohibited by Medicare now, yet you can buy insurance, private insurance, to cover all kinds of things that you want covered. Well, but the uh, things that are not covered by... But that's people, supplemental. Vulnerable people. But th- those are supplemental policies for things that are not covered by Medicare. Right. So is that that's wrong? No, that's great. Uh, you cannot imagine a legislative process that will come out with a Medicare for All bill that does not allow supplemental coverage for things that aren't covered. Yeah, no problem. Well, and yet we keep going back to this idea of, you know, banning private health insurance. Here was this scrum that took place 
with poor Beto O'Rourke, who, who really, as I said, I don't think did well. He was interrupted first by uh, de Blasio and then by former Maryland Congressman John Delaney. Would you replace private insurance? No, I, I think the choice is is fundamental hey, to wait, wait. our ability to get everybody yeah, care for. Private insurance is not working for tens of millions of Americans. When you talk about the co-pays, the deductibles, the premiums, the out-of-pocket expenses, it's not working. <laughs> that's How right. Can you so, so for those for whom it's not, not working, they can choose Medicare. For the culinary workers in you Nevada who I listen to, acknowledging the negotiated system is for not those working plans, for people. Uh, they're able to keep them. Why are you defending Americans private insurance? Say they like their private health insurance. By the way, it should be noted that 100 million. Americans. I mean, I think we should be the party that keeps what's working and fixes what's broken. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, we should give everyone in this country health care as a basic human right for free. Full stop. But we should also give them the option. So that was uh, John Delaney's one good moment, Heather, uh, where uh, and I think he does make a point. But I don't understand, even after talking with Dave about it, I don't understand why this is an issue at all. Sell health insurance if people want to buy something that they don't need because it's already provided. Uh, Why physically ban private health insurance? Uh, you're asking me. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of with you on this, Brad. I, I understand what Dave is saying, is that he's saying that just from a consumer product, uh, you know, from a fraud basis, um, mm-hmm. that you don't want to allow people to sell something to, you know, vulnerable, you know, old people, say, on the phone, or someone who doesn't know what they're doing, to buy some insurance policy that they don't need because they are already covered under, you know, whatever the Medicare for All is. I get that as a, as a rationale. From a, on a political basis, I think it's really a tough sell. And not just because I think people don't love their private insurance, but there are certain groups, many of whom are very powerful in our politics, that have worked very hard, i.e. unions, um, public employee unions, but, you know, various, you know, groups in, in large corporations who have put together health care plans that people really actually do uh, value. Mm-hmm. And for unions especially, I think it's going to be a very tough call because they actually gave up massive amounts of, you know, other other benefits, including salary, in order to get those benefits. It's going to be a real tough sell to get some of them to, to back off. And Dave would know more about He's worked with unions for years, so you probably know more about where that stands than I do. But that's just my insti- instinctive reaction. So, on a political basis, I think this is a tough sell, and, you know, we could go deep into why Elizabeth Warren, uh, who had not done that until last night, did it, but we don't have time. But that's a, there's an interesting tension going on on the left over this issue, and I think we'll see it sorted out probably over the next six to nine months on where the party's going to come down on it. But I can tell you one thing. It's going to be somewhere in there. There's going to be either a public option absolutely demanded in the agenda, or there's going to be Medicare for All. There's It's that's going to happen one way or the other. Which Elizabeth Warren did come out for last night. She said, I'm with Bernie on yeah. Medicare for All, and uh, she explained why. She says it solves all of these uh, various problems, uh, and that uh, she believes that uh, health care is a basic human right. Before I move on to war and uh, neoliberalism, uh, Dave, any further responses to that to clear anything up or tell us we're all wrong? Yeah. Or, yeah. I'll say what I always say. What's that? What Digby said. Okay. All right. We'll go with that then. That's what I always say, too. All right. uh, There has been very little discussion about uh, foreign wars and, uh, like I said, neoliberalism this cycle. Before I get to a break here very shortly, 
Uh, I want to hit this. Uh, and, you know, and I don't know why there has not been a lot of conversation here. Maybe because Trump suck, sucks up all the oxygen. But it, it, it came up last night in one of her few good moments. Uh, Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who's an Iraq war vet herself. She actually interrupted Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, I think. Uh, actually, he may have interrupted her first. In any event, uh, he seemed to be calling for more foreign wars, not less. Here is part of their exchange. The reality of it is if the United States isn't engaged, the Taliban will grow. We have got to have some present there. As, the as, the as Taliban was Iraq. there long before we came in. They'll yeah, be and there they were, long yeah, before exactly. we leave. Well, we cannot they keep U.S. And troops they were deployed to Afghanistan thinking that we're going to somehow squash this Taliban that has been say, there that every other country them. that's I didn't say squash them. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, the we Taliban have an didn't obli- attack us on the, 9-11. The, Al-Qaeda the, did. Well, I Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. I understand. That's why I and so I many other people joined the military to go I after Al-Qaeda, the not Taliban. the Taliban. Our friend uh, David Ferris of the week uh, tweeted, Tulsi Gabbard holds up Tim Ryan's beating heart for the crowd and (laughs) eats it. Uh, (laughs) So I think he kind of nailed it there. Dave, I I, you know, I welcome a strong anti-war voice in this uh, contest. But is that enough to sustain a uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, candidacy? Is she actually needed in this contest? Uh, That position is needed. Yeah, I won't get into her backstory, as I said. Uh, I'm sympathetic a bit with Tim Ryan's position. It's, it, we're in a quandary here. America in Afghanistan is nothing but corruption. Mm-hmm. You know, the people on the ground are desperately trying to do a good job. The policies from the top are not. Uh, but I, I feel for the women of Afghanistan. If uh, No, that's a Joe Biden phrase. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> she got it. Uh, the women of Afghanistan, okay, we, we have some, the world has some responsibility, and I think the world needs to go in and stop the Taliban from doing what they'll do. That, and I think it's the U.S. should arrange that, not try to be there ourselves and such. Heather, before we get to a break, that seemed to be Tim Ryan's argument, uh, also that he's from an industrial state that went to Donald Trump, so only he knows how to speak to voters, you know, who went from supporting Obama to supporting Trump. But is there anything to his, uh, to the argument that he was trying to make before uh, Gabbard ate no. his heart? <laughs> no, there isn't. It's exactly what Dave says. I mean, look, the, the, I don't, nobody articulated the the. the proper democratic um, position on foreign policy, and somebody's going to have to do it, and they better, they're going to have to do it better than I think Joe Biden is going to do what it. What is it? What is the proper democratic position? We believe in multilateral um, you know, alliances and institutions that we work together with other people in the world to try and solve these problems in order to keep us all safe. And it's not this unilateral, you know, uh, sort of economic imperialism of Donald Trump's where, you know, you pay me money and I'll protect you, which is basically what he's saying, is, is absolutely outrageous. And it's getting us into a lot of trouble, as we can see with what's happening in Iran right now. Look, uh, Afghanistan, I mean, it's exactly what Dave says. It should be the U.N., should be there to protect the women and to try and do this. I mean, it's not an mm-hmm. easy task 
ask. It's not, I'm not saying, you know, it's a cakewalk, but it, it shouldn't just be the U.S. doing this guarantee. Exactly, exactly. Mainly legitimacy, but it's not even because we can't afford it or whatever else. You know, there's money for a lot of things. But what there isn't is credibility and, <laughs> and legitimacy, and that requires an international response. Or at least that's my belief. So I would just jump in and say that I think that actually Beto had a moment there where he did articulate some of those values about being multilateral and international in trying to get out of Afghanistan and stabilize it. Let me take a quick break and come back with our closing few minutes with Heather Digby-Parton and Dave Johnson on our special coverage of Debate One, Night One from Miami. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The president literally went on TV on Fox and said that people's heads would spin when they see how much he would bring down pharmaceutical prices. Instead, 2,500 drugs have gone up in double digits since he came into office. Instead, he gave $100 billion in giveaways to the pharma companies. For the rest of us, for the rest of America, that's what we call at home, all foam and no beer. There's a tear in my beer. Yeah, that was uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar at the debate on Wednesday night. Welcome back. It's Brad Cass, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last few minutes of our special coverage of the Democratic debate from Miami, night one, with Heather Digby Parton of Salon and uh, Dave Johnson of Seeing the Forest. Um, Nobody seemed to have an answer on how they will take on Mitch McConnell if they become president, but Republicans still control the Senate. Uh, whether it's on, you know, things like seating a Supreme Court justice or gun legislation or anything else. And optimistic uh, Julian Castro seemed to reject the premise of the question. I believe that on January 20th, 2021, at 12.01 p.m., we're going to have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate. The question often is, if, it's, if the decision is between 60 votes, a filibuster, or passing common sense gun reform, I'm going to choose common sense gun reform. So I believe that we're going to be able to get that done in 2021. Ohio Congressman uh, Tim Ryan, however, had another take. If you want to beat Mitch McConnell, this better be a working class party if you want to go into Kentucky and take his rear end out. And if you want to take Lindsey Graham out, you got to have a blue collar party that can go into the textile communities okay. in South Carolina. Well, so right. all I'm saying is here, if we don't address that fundamental problem with our connection to workers, white, black, brown, gay, straight, working class people, you, none of this is going to get done, Chuck. Chuck, thank, thank you very much. I want to... Um, Jay Inslee, Washington uh, governor, I think was the closest when he said he would take the filibuster away from Mitch McConnell, though how that is done if McConnell controls the Senate is another matter. In truth, I think I need to associate myself here with our friend Cenk Uger uh, of the Young Turks and his response to these questions on Twitter last night. He said, here's the correct answer on how to deal with Senator uh, uh, with uh, Mitch McConnell. I'll break him. 
I'll make sure he never wins another election. He is the most corrupt man in America, and I'm going to make sure the whole country knows about it. Heather, uh, does that do it? Uh, Jenk Uger for president? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about that, but, you know, <laughs> I agree with him that the only way to really, you know, to fully be able to deal with this problem is to beat Mitch McConnell. But, you know, there are other ways. You can use other other methods uh, to try and, and press these people to do things, as Elizabeth Warren said to that question. But uh, it's a big problem, and uh, this goes back to the original conversation we had about the gerrymandering and the census and all that, because even though the Senate races aren't uh, affected by gerrymandering, it's this idea of this hardcore uh, red state uh, dominance of certain of, of the Senate and, in some cases, in the House. Uh, that we have to deal with, and I, I wish I had the answer, but honestly, I don't. Dave Johnson, uh, at risk of sounding too Chuck Toddy here, I need a 15-second response, and then we got to get out. <laughs> uh, I think that Warren and Bernie are articulating something important, and that is we need public mobilization by the bully pulpit of the White House to do something about a lot of these problems, and I'm not hearing it from the others. That was Obama's huge mistake. He shut that down when he got into office. And I'm going to have to shut this down at this point, at least until our next thrilling and delightful broadcast. Uh, my thanks to Salon's Heather Digby Parton. Uh, you can, as always, find her work at uh, uh, Salon.com and Digby's Blogspot. I'm sorry, Digby's Blog dot blogspot dot com. She's also on the Twitters at Digby five six. You can find Dave Johnson on the Twitters at DC Johnson, and of course at SeeingTheForest.com. My thanks as well to Desi Doyen as ever. You, like Heather, will be with us here on uh, the next uh, thrilling edition when we cover part two of the Democratic debate. Yep. Uh, let's see. Until then, you can drop me email if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And if you missed any portion of this show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. Okie dokie. That is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.